start. Okay, let's get this web underway. We'll start with a karakia. Unahia te pō te pō perimarama. Tomakia te ao te ao whatitangata. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahurau. Hamie, huie, kaiakie. So kia ora tato, haere mai, and welcome to the Natural Hazards Alpine Fault field trip, which is supported by EQC. And with us this morning, we've got Carolyn, and we've got Alice. And of course, our ambassadors, we've got Walt from Island School, and the mischievous Maya, the Loons ambassador, who hung out with some of their friends up at Arthur's Pass yesterday on the way through. And we'll start with just allowing Carolyn and Alice a bit of time to introduce themselves and tell us about their work. So we'll start with Carolyn. Kia ora. Morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Um, I'm Caroline Orchiston, and I work at the University of Otago. And I'm really keen on the Alpine Fault, and I've been working on the Alpine Fault for a long time. When I was a student, I did a mapping project just down the road from here. So I'm really keen on the Fault, and we love talking about it with with young people like you. So looking forward to your questions. Thanks, Carol. And Alice. Morena, everybody. I, um, I'm from the South Island and I've been fascinated with our landscape for a really long time now. Um, I work with Caroline at the University of Otago for an organization that helps us be better prepared for an Alpine fault earthquake. And that's what we're talking about a little bit on this field trip. Mm. And I'll let you into a little secret. Although if you're a fan of GeoNet, you might've seen it already. We felt a little earthquake last night, just a little one. Um, but it was a wee jolt, just very, very weak. And I presume it was quite deep. Um, I'm not sure what the depth was actually, but it was a magnitude 4.5. Yeah. Oh, really? So hopefully that's all we feel during the week and no major earthquakes because we are, of course, an earthquake country. So welcome along to our speaking schools. And I can see Barry in the Loon's office there who is in Christchurch, who will be fielding questions. Um, he's showing you the GeoNet site. So if you want to find out more about the earthquake that we've just talked about, check it out on GeoNet. You might even see some earthquakes in your own area because of course there's thousands of earthquakes all the time and a lot of them we don't feel, but you can see them recorded on GeoNet. It was a 4.6 so, and it was five okay, kilometers deep. According oh, to the GNR app. Whereabouts was it? Uh, near Hokitika, 50 kilometres south of Hokitika. Hokitika. Oh, okay, so we're further south again. So if we'd been closer, we probably would have felt it much stronger. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, thank you. So welcome along to our speaking school this morning. We've got Otomotai Intermediate School and we'll get started with your questions because we are on a bit of a tight time frame. You may have seen from Andrew's video that it's quite grey here in Franz Josef, and it's threatening rain. Of course, it's rainforest country. There's a lot of rain, so we do want to get out before it starts raining. But uh, it's lovely to be able to talk to you from Taipotini, the west coast, Westland. Okay, Otsumotai School, can we have your question number one, please? On the the earth 
Sorry, it's breaking up. You're going to have to be much, much closer, really close, way closer to the Did microphone. <laughs> and now he's frozen. Video's <laughs> frozen. We have an issue with internet. Not that, yeah, must be at their end, and now they've disappeared. <laughs> oh, oh no, there they are. Oh, here they are. Hey, good to have you back. So, can you can you try asking question number one again? Sorry, we have a very um, we have a very unstable connection. Sorry, so hopefully stay now. Um, okay, off here's one big mat together. So you could turn your video off if you wanted to. Okay, so uh, we'll just repeat question one uh, and end away with that. Not yeah, we can't hear too well, I'm sorry. So question number one for everyone listening is, when the Earth had Pangea, one length, what was the rest of the Earth held together with? So, so when the Earth had Pangea, the fact that all plants started. When the Earth had Pangea, is one big mass. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're, we're hearing each other on, on delay there, I think. I'll, I'll just have, we've got the question there and Carolyn is going to start to answer that. Yeah, hey, thanks so much for the question and hopefully you can hear me okay. But if you have any problems, maybe put your thumbs up and we'll, we'll pause for a minute. But it's a great question. It's all about Pangaea. And so Pangaea was a supercontinent that existed about 200 million years ago. So that's a long time ago, isn't it? So Pangaea was when all the, all the plates that we have now uh, were all in one big bunch. Before that, there were other ways that the plates looked because actually the, the Earth has been around for 4.5 billion years. And so all the plates that sit on top of the Earth's crust in other words, if you, if you imagine the Earth is an egg and you break the shell of the egg, those, those parts of the eggshell, you could think about them like plates or tectonic plates. And so we've had a very long time on Earth and 200 million years ago, Pangaea was the way that all the plates looked and then they moved apart again. So the, the reason we have that movement across the Earth's surface is because of uh, a very hot part of the in, in, inside of the, of the Earth. So the core of our planet, Earth, is very hot. And what happens when something hot moves? It always moves up. You know, it's like hot air rising. And it forms these convective cells in the, in, inside of our world, our planet. And that convection drives the plates across the Earth's surface. I hope that's not too hard to understand. Does that make sense? Awesome. Wondering a bit more about that, you can check out the background page as well. It's got a good diagram of the, the convection currents that Carolyn's talking about. So those, those plates have always been there. It's just what shape they've created and what land masses and how they're always moving. Okay, we'll, we'll give question number two a go. What makes a continent a continent? Great question. We heard awesome. you loud and clear. Well done. So a continent is basically just a landmass. Um, and there are seven of those big continents across the globe. And you've probably heard of most of them. 
Um, I'm thinking of Asia, Africa, Europe, Australasia, Antarctica. I might have missed one. Oh, North America and South America. And so those continents, you can see them on the map. They're quite sort of uh, distinct from each other. The continent, uh, continent of Africa and, and all those different ones. And so they're basically a, a land mass. That's what a continent is. And question number three, please. Thank you. Have there been any eruptions on the Alpine fault? And do you believe there could be? Ah, good question. Because plate boundaries, there can be volcanology, but not along the Alpine fault. Yeah, no, that's right. So when we talk about eruptions, we're normally talking about volcanoes. But what um, what earthquakes, sorry, what faults do is they, they release earthquakes. And that happens when one side of the fault moves relative to the other side of the fault. When that happens, it releases energy and we call that seismic energy and that's what an earthquake is. And so, yes, we, we know that the Alpine Fault has released earthquakes in the past. We have quite a long record of earthquakes that have happened on the Alpine Fault. And we can find that stuff out by looking um, in the landscape. We can look at some of the soils and sediments that have that uh, you know, are up and down the West Coast here. And scientists have found evidence for about 27 earthquakes over the last 8,000 years on the Alpine Fault. The last one of those was in 1717 AD. And we'll be talking more about that on uh, the next few days of the field trip. So listen in for that. Yeah, and we'll be also talking about what you can do to prepare for the likes of an Alpine Fault earthquake, or if you're in a different part of the country, an earthquake of, of any kind. Okay, we're now up to question number four, please. How do you measure the highest point on the fault? Yeah, this is, a, this is a quite an intriguing question, and I'm not actually sure what you mean by the highest point on the fault. Do you, can you help me understand a bit better what you mean by that? It's to do with, um, you've got Aoraki along there, which is part of the fault, I believe. How do you know how high the highest points are? How do you measure a high mountain? Oh, you mean on the on the, the, the landscape, high, how high the mountains are? Right, good question. So um, New Zealand scientists have this way of measuring um, elevation. It's called geodetic uh, markers. And basically what they do is they, they get the special device and they cut it and they put it on. And then they can yeah, they have very tiny yeah. movement. Movement. I hope you can hear me okay because there's a bit of a break. So if you're if you're listening, if you're listening, you can mute your microphone because otherwise because otherwise it's really bad. It's really bad. No applause. Yeah. There we go. That's better. Thanks okay. very much. That makes a huge difference. So that's that's one way of measuring the elevation of the landscape. There are much more modern techniques now, which are called remote sensing, and you can use satellites to do that, and that helps you make really great um, measurement of the landscape and how it's moving and changing. Okay. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting to think about that landscape changing over time and, and the fact that, you know, the Southern Alps have taken quite a, a period of time to form to the height that they are now. But if we didn't have erosion, they'd be mm. even higher. Apparently the height of like um, the Himalayas, mm. but um, lots and lots of erosion. So that keeps keeps the growth at about the rate of your fingernails. So I guess that's right. Yeah. centimeter a year, something like that. Yeah, about 10, millim about 10 millimeters a year of, of movement going up so the upper the southern alps are going up at about that rate yeah thanks carolyn and question number five now please oh, yeah. i can't tectonic plates meld together mm, that's a good interesting question because you're obviously thinking about the heat involved that drives that convection so mm. could they meld together yeah so um yeah, we've talked a bit about tectonic plates, and there are two main types of plates. We have what we call continental plates and oceanic plates, basically. So they're made up of different things. Oceanic crust is a lot heavier than continental crust. And when those two types of plates go together, the heavy one goes down underneath the other one. And so it starts to go underneath the continental crust that's called subduction and we've got one of those big subduction zones up on the north island maybe near where you live on the east coast and so these tectonic plate boundaries are places where lots of volcanoes and earthquakes happen because it's a very high energy environment and that's why we're getting lots of volcanoes and earthquakes across new zealand because we live on a plate boundary yeah, and that's why it's important for us all to think about the hazards in our own region and being prepared for them. And question number six now, please. What is the highest magnitude earthquake caused by the Alpine Fault? Mm. Great question, yeah. So as I mentioned just before, we know that there have been quite a few earthquakes on the Alpine Fault over a long time. But we, we couldn't measure them at the time because we weren't here. So the only way we can try and understand how big these earthquakes were was by using our powers of scientific inquiry. And because we know the Alpine Fault's really long, it's 600 kilometres long, and we can see evidence of where the earthquakes have happened in the past, we can do a calculation that helps us understand what the magnitude might have been. And scientists say that the earthquake magnitudes were probably magnitude 7.8 to 8.2, something like that on, this, on the magnitude scale. So quite large and hence the term AF8. So an Alpine fault magnitude eight is what we're all thinking about in terms of what could happen. So that's what we need to be prepared for. So a large earthquake. Question number seven, please. How is the how is the age of the earth measured? Wow, that's such a great it's question. A, it's a tricky one. I'm interested to hear the answer to this. <laughs> no idea. Well, yeah. I mean, again, this is um, this is a sort of a an area of science that's it's changed quite a lot over the years, and there are different ways of doing this now. Um, it's called um, it's called isotopes. And so isotopes are a thing that you find in rocks and in water that you can measure. And so, as I said before, the, the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, but it is possible to look at some of the minerals and rocks and measure these isotopes and figure out the age of the rocks. It's pretty cool science. 
in New Zealand, we have no rocks that are that old, but in some parts of the world, they have these very, very old rocks. There aren't very many of them around the world, actually, because most of those have been subducted underneath and gone back down into the earth and been cooked up again and maybe come back out as a volcano or something else, because the earth's an amazing place for recycling rocks and, you know, it's been going on for billions of years. So it's a really cool uh, field of science. Mm, and if you're, you're intrigued by isotopes, you could do a bit of research and, and look at um, what scientists are measuring when they measure isotopes and, and their uh, rate of decline and all that sort of thing. And when they come up with something like a billion years as a date, of course, they're not going to be able to come up with exact dates, you know, like no. 1.5 billion years and six months. <laughs> That's right. So it's, it's an approximate date. Excellent. Okay, I think we're up to question number eight now, please. What are the educational pathways to becoming a geologist? Yeah. Well, you're already on the pathway because you're taking part in this field trip. So that shows that you're interested in your landscape and you're interested in the natural world around you. So um, I would say that the first thing to be doing is to, thinking, to think about taking geography at school so you learn some really great um, some great stuff at high school uh, that will help you understand about some of these natural processes and then uh, you might decide to go to university and if you do you might take subjects like geology or geography and when I went to university I did a, ge a geology degree um, and it was the best thing I've ever done it was fantastic to study uh, what's happening out there in the, in the earth and it, it helps you explain the things that you're seeing all around you the mountains you know the the rivers and the beaches and all sorts of things and understanding your natural world so that's that's the pathway really it's 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 doing geography and maybe doing some other earth science things when you get to university so I'm, I'm just calling Alice over. She's, she's frantically been doing some work because she's, she's also involved in this kind of work, but in a different way. So she's been frantically doing some graphics. Alice, tell us a little bit more about your work because you're not a geologist. No, I'm not a geologist. Like I said, I'm just someone who has a real fascination with the landscape and where we live. And I like to be able to communicate um, why that landscape is the way it is to help us better understand how to live comfortably and more safely within it. Because like Caroline was explaining, we do live across two big tectonic plates and that means we have earthquakes. And that causes a lot of our beautiful, beautiful landscapes, but it also can make life a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when it starts shaking. So I got into this job because I love communicating information. And I think one of the things that's really important if you're going into these kinds of things is to think about how you can talk about them more. Because the more we talk about our landscape and earthquakes, the better prepared we can be. Yeah, and it's, it's an important part about thinking about where we're going, what we're doing, being prepared for the activities that we're going to take part in. So here, when we're staying in, in Franz Joseph, I know I start to think about, okay, so if there is an earthquake or something, what, what's my plan? Um, what would I do? What kind of things do I need to take with me? What do I need to be prepared for? So it's just like going anywhere. You need to think about the environment first and making sure that you're staying safe within that. Thanks, Alice. And now we're up to question number nine. Is there such thing as an extinct volcano? 
Oh, an extinct fire. I love this question because <laughs> it all depends on how you define things, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, because the Earth's been around for a long time. So, you know, when is a, a volcano extinct? So, yes, there is such a thing as an extinct volcano. And sometimes they become extinct because things change around them. Uh, some of you live in Christchurch, I think. And you've got a volcano just on your back doorstep. Well, at least an old extinct volcano. It's on Banks Peninsula, isn't it? And so that volcano erupted many millions of years ago, about 12, 15 million years ago, I think. And that's not going to erupt again because the tectonic environment around it has changed. There's nothing producing magma underneath that place anymore. And so you're not going to have another volcanic eruption in Christchurch, just the same as Dunedin. We've got an old extinct volcano as well that was erupting about 10 or 12 million years ago, and that's not going to erupt again. Well, at least for many millions of years into the future. And we don't, we can't predict that, but it won't happen anytime soon. Yeah, and both Carolyn and, and myself are from Dunedin and quite a similar sort of environment down in Dunedin to Christchurch with the, the harbour and the old volcanic area, but not, not likely to erupt. No, <laughs> luckily for us. <laughs> And last question, number 10, please. What is the oldest active volcano in New Zealand? Gosh, yeah, this is a tricky one. I had to actually look online and try and find the answer to this question. And I don't think I really did because it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one um, because active volcanoes are still active now. And I mean, you might even remember last year, the Fakari White Island eruption. And that's a very active volcano. And around the central part of the North Island, um, there are many active volcanoes. Mount Ruapehu um, erupted in 1995. That was the most recent time. And it's always bubbling away and it might erupt again sometime in the near future. And there are other, um, there are other active volcanoes in the central North Island that haven't erupted for quite a few thousand years, but they're probably going to again sometime. Um, Auckland, for example, has a volcanic field that hasn't erupted for as long as we've been around for many thousands of years, well, sorry, hundreds of years in New Zealand for, for us being here, but um, it's very likely to erupt again in the future. And they can tell that by, um, by looking underneath the city of Auckland using special scanners and things like that. And they know that, that it probably will erupt again in the next, uh, next few hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah, that's a really interesting science because unlike earthquakes that you can't predict at all, mm. um, they're, they're quite a surprise. Um, you know that maybe on a particular fault like the Alpine fault that's mm. very regular, that there is a chance that it's going to um, rupture soonish, maybe in our lifetime, maybe in mm. the next generation. But volcanoes, you can kind of measure what's happening underground, the, right. the change that happens when that magma rises up That's right. before yes. a, a volcano. Yeah there, are lots of, yeah, there are lots of signs and signals that a volcano is getting um, ready to erupt. And some of that is little earthquakes. We get what we call micro earthquakes that happen around volcanoes that give us a bit of forewarning that something's happening. There's a bit of unrest happening. And so, um, you know, we, we take notice of that when it starts to happen. Sometimes the temperature of the water and the, if there's a lake at the top of the volcano, that might start to increase. And so the scientists are always monitoring our active volcanoes to make sure we can keep on top of that and get prepared for when something might happen. Mm. And trouble is that unrest period can last a really, really long time before it decides that. That's right. Okay, yeah. today's the day. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's why we all need to think about um, 
what's possible so that mm -hmm. it's it's something that we're we're more prepared for okay so brilliant questions this morning from Otomotai intermediate school great to have you um, come up with those this morning you've obviously done lots of hard work and research so well done pleasure talking to you um, we're going to stick around for a few minutes for any extra questions that you can um, type in the chat pod so if you scroll down the bottom there's a little chat bubble if you click on that it opens up the chat window so if you type your questions in there Barry will um, organize those so that we can answer those over the next few minutes but thank you very much to our speaking school and of course to our experts Carolyn and Alice for such great answers Thank you very much. I've put one in to get us started. What elements on the periodic table have isotopes used to measure the age of rocks? Is it carbon, Ooh. cesium? Oh, we're getting into some chemistry. <laughs> are you asking me this, Barry, or are you yeah. throwing it out to the earth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely carbon is one of the ones that is probably the most commonly used. And the great thing about carbon is that we can measure things that are quite recent in age as well. So even in the last few hundreds or thousands of years. Um, and But it can go back in time for a much longer period, obviously, as well. Um, there are other ones, but actually I can't even remember what they are off the top of my head. I should have got prepared for that question, Barry. <laughs> oh, I'm struggling to remember my, my bursary chemistry and isotopes yeah, and, and half-lifes and all that sort of stuff. My brother would scold me because he works in this field, so he should, uh, yes, I should remember, but anyway. <laughs> You'll have to catch up with a barbecue and get the answer. So there's one from Janine Fryer's class. Why are some earthquakes jolts? And some are shaking and some are rolling. Mm, good question. Because yeah, in Christchurch, when we had those big earthquakes, I remember all of those. We had mm. big variety. Yeah. So this um, this question tells us, or is is really about the intensity of ground shaking that we're feeling, isn't it? And so intensity, um, there's a a big part of that is the kind of ground that you're sitting on when the earthquake comes to you. So um, if you're on, for example, in Christchurch. You're sitting on lots of sediments because underneath the city of, of Christchurch, there's a lot of river gravels and sediments. They tend to wobble around a lot. Whereas if you're sitting on a hard rock, sort of solid foundation, it doesn't uh, move as much. It also depends how far away you are from where the earthquake starts. So for example, if we had an Alpine fault earthquake and it started somewhere, let's say around Milford Sound, but you lived in Wellington, by the time that earthquake gets to you, it's going to feel a lot more like a, a rolling sensation because it's traveled a long distance to get to where you are. But if you're sitting right on top of Milford Sound when that earthquake happens, you're going to feel it like a very strong up and down and very agitated um, earthquake. Yeah, one way I like to think about intensity, you know, when you drop a, a stone into a puddle and the waves kind of go out like this and they spread out and they get a lot wider. So if you're really close to where that stone falls in, you almost feel that, that those waves are a bit stronger, but once they sort of get bigger and dissipate, they turn into different kinds of waves. And like Caroline says, if you're further away, they tend to roll a bit more. So that's how I like to think about earthquakes sometimes. Mm, that, that's a really good way of thinking about it. And from Tracy's, thank you, from Tracy's class, how many major earthquakes have we had in New Zealand? And also what do you mean in our lifetime? 
Mm, good, good question. question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when we're talking about major earthquakes in New Zealand, um, I would say that those earthquakes would be maybe something bigger than magnitude seven. And over the time since about 1840, when the Treaty of Watangi was signed, um, we've had about 17 or 18 earthquakes bigger than magnitude seven. Um, something like that. I can't remember the exact number. The biggest of all was in the Wairarapa, and we had a magnitude 8.2 earthquake. It was called the Wairarapa earthquake. And that was a major event and um, did a bit of damage around Wellington. And since then, we've had other big earthquakes. Um, you might have heard of the Anangahua earthquake in 1968, the Napier earthquake in 1931. That earthquake actually... Uh, did the most uh, damage to Napier and it killed um, the most people that we've ever had um, killed during an earthquake. That was 258 people. So we've had a, a number of big earthquakes since 1840 in New Zealand. Mm. How, oh, and, how and our was lifetime, um, yeah. the Kaikoura earthquake? Yeah, the Kaikoura earthquake was not a, a magnitude 7.8. So again, that was a really big earthquake as well, wasn't it? And the rest of the question was around what do we mean by in our lifetime? And again, that's a really good question. So, you know, for everyone, we have we have a lifespan, don't we? And for some of us who are in our sort of 40s, our lifespan's a bit shorter than for, for those of you in the classroom today. So when we say in our lifetimes, we're sort of thinking of, you know, the next sort of uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of someone's life into the future. And that number will be different for everyone. Mm. And... and Mother Nature doesn't always behave herself. She, she's not always predictable. And when I was looking at how often the Alpine Fault ruptures, there's been a whole lot of research on that. And recent research has revealed a record going something like 8,000 years back, which is massive mm -hmm. in geological terms. Usually we don't get a record that long. And there was something like um an average of 330 years for every alpine fault rupture mm. but the least number of years between earthquakes was something like 140 years mm -hmm. and the longest period was around 500 years so that's actually not a lot of variation when you're talking about earthquakes on a fault so they they described the alpine fault as being one of the most regularly that's right. rupturing. Gosh, Shelley, you've faults. done your homework. That's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> that's right. I, I, I mean, the alpine fault is building up seismic energy. It's storing it up, and every now and again, it releases that pressure with a big earthquake. But as you say, that's not going to happen exactly on three hundred years. Sometimes a little bit shorter. Sometimes a little bit longer. So we can't predict when earthquakes are going to happen. But we know with the Alpine Fault, the way that it's behaved in the past tells us a lot about what it might do in the future. Yeah, Thanks. and then you've got other fault lines, of course, throughout New Zealand. So you can find out where, where faults are by having a, a search online. That's right. We have another question from Piwakawaka uh, class from Canary School. Can you see an earthquake from space? I presume an earthquake happening. I presume you can see a fault from space, but can you yeah. see an earthquake happening from space? Wow, that's amazing. And, and yeah, I think um, the technology these days is advancing so quickly that satellites probably could capture that sort of information actually. Um, and so we can definitely see the damage caused by earthquakes from space. And I think these days you probably could actually 
um, observe, you know, the changing in the landscape as that earthquakes are actually happening. So yeah, it's pretty amazing science that's coming on. The satellite satellite based internet is changing the way that we do things in science really quickly. And there are some smart people that get hold of graphics and they they model what happened. You know what what way the mm. um, the waves went and and how it propagated through the country. And there's some cool things online that you might be able to find. Mm. Um, I think especially around the Kaikoura earthquake, which triggered multiple faults. So there was good animations of that. So have a search online, you might be able to see those. So if we had a magnitude eight um, Alpine fault rupture, say in Milford or Franz Josef, mm. how, how far away would you have to be to avoid severe shaking and damage to buildings? Yeah, so um, the worst damage uh, caused by an earthquake like that is going to be around 10 kilometers either side of the fault itself. And so if you sort of draw, draw an oblong or a big oval around the Southern Alps, that's where the most damage is going to be felt. But this earthquake is going to spread out across the South Island and into the Upper North Island and will probably do some damage to um, right, right up the fault and then into Nelson, Tasman and across Cook Strait and into the lower part of the North Island. So there will be some damage in those areas, but it will reduce um, as you get further away from the Alpine Fault. Cool, thank you. So from Janine's class, again, Janine Fry's class, does the Alpine Fault travel through the sea? Mm, that's a great question too. So the Alpine Fault, the way it's defined, it's actually all on land apart from a tiny bit that goes off the bottom end at Milford. So the fault goes off the coast and it, and it goes um, a little bit further south of Milford Sound before it then becomes what we call the Pusica Trench, which is a different thing. It's actually a subduction zone with the Australian plate going down under the South Island, so underneath the Pacific plate. And so it's all part of the same plate boundary. It's all this big structure that goes right through New Zealand, but it's just given a different name. A bit like a street that veers off one way, it becomes an, another street or road. It's just a, a kind of naming convention, right. really, isn't yeah, it? But yes. I guess it, it illustrates the kind of behaviour that's happening in that particular part. Yeah, in that's terms right. of whether it's subduction or whether yeah. it's collision or, or whatever. So the Alpine faults all the same sort of movement. That's right. Yeah, it's mainly moving uh, sideways. So the Alpine fault is mainly moving past the other side with a little bit of uplift coming too. So we've got the Southern Alps there because... Uh, the movement across the plate is a little bit up, but mainly side to side. And when you get down off the coast of Milford, it becomes a, a collision zone where one plate is diving down underneath the other one. Thanks, and Nick. we've got time for one last question. Yeah, Marg's class from uh, Utamutai. Um, you said the mm -hmm. age of the Earth was 4.5 billion years old. Do you know the age mm -hmm. of New Zealand? May, I presume you'll yeah. be the same methods used to determine it. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, New Zealand is one of the youngest countries in the world uh, in terms of our landmass being exposed above the sea. So uh, you might have, so you heard of Pangaea. There was another thing called Gondwana, a, another supercontinent that was around a, a few hundreds of millions of years ago. Well, not even hundreds of millions, tens of millions ago, years ago. And then New Zealand kind of broke away from Gondwana. But the rocks that made up the New Zealand uh, continent of Zealandia uh, sometimes really old rocks and sometimes much younger rocks, but when they all came together into the New Zealand continent, 
um, they mash together. And, and so we've got this real mishmash of different ages of the rocks in New Zealand. But in terms of New Zealand as a country, it's one of the youngest in the world because our tectonics are all, it's all happening now with the plate boundary and, you know, the subduction and the mountain building. All of that's happened in the last sort of 10 or 15 million years. Excellent. And just before we leave you, um, Alice on her computer has got open a story map that she's been working on. And we've linked it on the resources section of the LEARNS website. We don't know how this is going to work, but if you have a look, one screen to another. There we go. Um, so discovering the Alpine Fault is a story map and you can actually go through, scroll through it and it gives you um, bits of information and there's even a little quiz to do at the end. And you can see Gaunt Creek there, and that's where we're headed today. Oh, we've just scrolled away from it, but you'll be able to find out more about Gaunt Creek in the videos, which will be online for you tomorrow. But this is just another resource, really cool animations. There we go, that's where we're going today. Where you can explore the landscape, and there's Gaunt Creek just there where we can stand one foot on one plate and the other foot on the other. So that's pretty exciting. <laughs> so thank you very much to everybody that has taken part today. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I do hope you can join us for our next web conference tomorrow. A big thank you to our experts, Alice and Carolyn. And now we'll all unmute our microphones and we can say a big goodbye. Bye, guys. See you guys. Have a great day. So and that brings our lens web conference to an end.